Hi, this is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Thank you for joining me in my lovely little corner of the internet on this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about autism, but not just autism itself. We're going to do a lot of dialogue talking to actual autistic people, getting their perspectives on autism and how it's looked at in society. We're also going to be talking to providers who provide services for autism and how they kind of see and approach autism. And we're also going to be talking to family members and get their viewpoint on what it's like to have a family member with autism. And we're going to have dialogues with all different kinds of people, including those. Some of those dialogues could get a little deep. We might talk about some some touchy subjects like racism and access to resources. But these are all topics that we know need to be talked about. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and I'll talk to you soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my little corner of the podcast world. Again, this is Angel, and you have found Spark Up. I hope wherever you are, you're having a fantastic day or night right now. And this topic is one that came up uh, because of an unfortunate tragedy that happened uh, in my area over the past few days. But I feel like it's something that has to be discussed it gets brought up whenever a tragedy tragedy like this happens, but then it kind of disappears back into the ether until another occurrence happens. And that is the case of a um, autistic child drowning. In uh, this particular instance, it was a five-year-old um, autistic child. I believe the child was black. He was nonverbal and he uh, drowned over the weekend in a waterway that was very close to his home. Uh, the family had, I know they were looking for him for, I believe a couple of days before they found him. And I know that the, the family had said that the boy really loved, um, water and that, so in in that sense, that's very common actually with autistic children, uh, a love of water. We're going to talk a bit about that as well. So, um, yes, on one side, this episode is a bit more somber, but I'm also going to talk a lot about uh, autism and water and things that uh, you can do as a parent, as a caregiver, as a teacher to possibly help safeguard against these kind of tragedies from happening. Because a lot of it comes down to prevention measures and really being and really focusing on security and making sure you know where the child is at all times. Um, especially if this child is one who tends to elope or run away. So that's, that's going to be the subject of today's um, episode. Again, I know it's, it's a bit somber, but it's something that I feel has to be spoken about. And this is a podcast that focuses on autism. So we have to talk about all the aspects of autism, including the ones that the, the parts of it that can be tragic and the parts that are, scary and kind of tough to talk about. And this is one that can be tough to talk about, which, you know, but it's something that happens in this, in the autism world on a regular basis. And we need to do all we can to help to prevent it.
So according to a study done in 2017 by researchers Guan and Lee, autistic children are 160 times more likely to die from drowning than neurotypical children. I'm going to repeat that. 160 times more likely than neurotypicals. This also builds on the fact that, like I mentioned earlier with the elopement, autistic kids tend to elope or run off without warning. And if they're near bodies of water, you can understand how that could be a huge, huge danger. If you think about the area that um, I live in and where I'm recording from, which is Palm Beach County, we're in South Florida. There are bodies of water everywhere. We're on a peninsula. We are surrounded on three sides by water. We have canals, we have waterways, we have, uh, we have lakes. Many, 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 many of our suburban neighborhoods and communities have a setup that where it's like surround, you know, there's, there's um, homes surrounding a lake or right alongside a canal. And is it aesthetically pleasing? Yes. Are there gates usually separating these homes from the lakes? Sometimes. Not always. I've, I've been in plenty of uh, developments where you can literally just walk out, you know, out the front door, turn and just walk through the grass and walk straight up to the lake. To say nothing of the fact that a lot of times these lakes and canals tend to have animals in them, such as like alligators, snakes, because we are in Florida. So you have those dangers. And then you have the fact that you have a, a group of, of kids who are very much drawn to water. You put all these different things together and that could lead to tragedy very, very easily. So I guess one of the million dollar questions that I've heard is why are autistic children so fascinated with water? I know I had a, um, I can think of a couple of kids off the top of my head that I've had in the past. There was one who was a two-year-old who had autism due to brain damage at birth. And he absolutely loved to just, he did this with sand and water. He loved to like just scoop and pour out water or sand. And he would just, he would just sit there and do that. If you let him for hours on end, he would just sit and laugh and he loved to watch, watch the water, you know, pour down the water, or the sand. And it wasn't until I sat with him and actually did it with him that I realized why he enjoyed doing it. The reason why he liked it, and this is this particular kiddo, was because of the fact that he loved watching the sunlight catch the water droplets as the water was falling. So if you really actually like took a cup, sat on the sun and poured water out like slowly, you could actually see the sun kind of catching, catching and bouncing off of the water. And that's what he loved to look at. That was his visual stimuli. So this comes back to sensory. So it's a, it can be a visual stimulus for a lot of kids, pouring the water or watching water drip. Um, other kids, I had one who was a bit older, who I've had several actually, who absolutely love to be in the bathtub. They, if you give them a bath, they will stay in there again for hours. And it is a battle royale to try to get them out of the bathtub. For those, it could be that the water on their skin is stimulating or it could be the opposite, it could be very calming a soothing technique, and they just really enjoy the feeling and the sensation of water on their skin. Some really love the water, but they hate p- 
putting their head underwater. They will not, uh, you know, you'd have to fight to get them to learn how to breathe underwater. They don't want to. Others absolutely love being completely submerged underwater. Because a lot of times if you're underwater, you have less sensory input kind of coming in. You have a lot, but at the same time, you don't. That's one reason why um, sensory deprivation tanks are so popular because you're lying basically in nothing but water. And so there's no other sensations that are coming in. You're, when you're underwater, you're not getting bombarded with all of the sensations that you would get if you're above water or on ground. Everything. Think about when you put your head underwater, hold your breath and go underwater. Everything above you gets muffled. So night is not as noisy anymore. You can't smell anything under there. The, you know, even light and things coming in get kind of distorted when you're in the water. So it's a bit of a, almost like a break to them from the overwhelming, you know, stimulus filled world. So on that side, it's like, okay, I, I can kind of see why they, you know, why they have a, a, a penchant toward really enjoying water. Most of it is because of sensory needs. And from what I've seen, interestingly enough, and a lot of parents uh, are kind of, you know, get kind of uh, about this, that doesn't seem to carry over to hygiene. They still don't seem to like things like teeth brushing or face washing. Um, we believe it's because that these sensations are really, really intense for them. It's a different kind of feeling to be just underwater versus having a washcloth put over your put over your face or scrubbed on your face or having a toothbrush put in your mouth and having to, you know, scrub at your teeth, even though, you know, there's water involved in that as well. So the hygiene bit the water-based hygiene um, procedures and processes like toothbrushing and face washing may still they may still be adverse to that because it's just way too intense for them. But being actually in water for a lot of autistic kids seems to be a very wonderfully soothing and calming experience for them for a variety of reasons. So before I go more into um, some of the things and um, techniques and precautions that we can take as far as safety goes, I wanted to talk a little bit about elopement itself. Uh, basically, elopement, uh, we usually associate it with, uh, you know, weddings. If, if a couple eloped, what did they do? They ran off and got married without telling someone. And that's exactly what elopement is. It's leaving an area without permission or without telling or alerting someone. And as I said before, this is extremely common with autistic children. And I wanted to bring up the fact that uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, parenting style does not dictate whether or not elopement's going to occur. Uh, this was, this was you know, concluded in a study as far back as 2012. There was a study that, that showed that you know, parenting style does not dictate elopement. So it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, it's just that you're not, you're not disciplining your child enough or you're not holding on to your child enough. The truth of the matter is I've seen enough kids who have elopement now to say that parenting style doesn't matter. I have seen every kind of parenting style you can think of at this point, mixes of different parenting styles, and the parenting style never mattered. 
If the child is prone to eloping, they're just prone to eloping. That's it is what it is. Um, it, it, to me, I, I will dare say that I think it's a kind of a waste of time to sit and try to argue over whether or not one parenting style would stop elopement or, or not. The truth of the matter is, if you have an autistic child that's eloping, the focus is to how is how can we keep that child safe? That should be the the focus. And working on that and working on preventing the elopement or severely reducing the amount of times the child may run off will, of course, significantly reduce and lower the risk of drowning. So what does elopement kind of look like? This could, it could happen at home. It can happen in public places. There are certain things that tend to trigger it to happen or certain circumstances or environments that may make it more possible to occur. Uh, from what I've seen with kids and families that I've worked with in the past, they will, uh, this definitely would happen in public places, usually because the child's getting a bit overwhelmed. Or they, it may be as simple as they saw something way off in the distance that caught their attention and they're like, oh, I want to go check that out. And they're just going to go and check that out. Um, a lot of times I notice working with um, autistic kids, they don't always have the, I guess, self-preservation built in as some of us tend to when we're, when we're developing. For example, they may, in eloping, run out into the street. A lot of little kids do it, but this could be something that is much more prone to happen with autistic kids. They, if they're focused on something that they saw, suddenly everything else around them gets blocked out. So no, they may not see the the car coming. No, they may not realize, hey, that body of water in front of me is a bit deeper than I'm thinking it may be. They None of that may be in their head. They're just thinking, eh, I saw something really fascinating over there. I want to run over there and, and go check it out. They So they could have looked because they saw something interesting. They can't elope because they're, like I said, they're overwhelmed. There's too much going on around them sensory-wise. And so they just, they need to get out of the area. There are usually, I guess you could say, warning signs from the child that they may be getting overstimulated. And I think it's important to recognize those. I think each child's a little different as far as what their warning signs are. Uh, for very For much younger kids, it may be that they start whining more. Or they might be covering their ears if they have a lot of sensitivity uh, with hearing. They may start trying to like kind of hide, but usually they'll be, or you'll start noticing some kind of repetitive behavior that they do when they get anxious. Like they may start, you know, twiddling their fingers. They may start doing some of those repetitive motions that you usually only see when they're getting anxious. If you start seeing those kind of signs from the child, and this is a child that's prone to run off. That may be, an, not always, but it may be an indication that they may be at kind of at their, uh, at their limit, and that's when you might have a much higher chance of the child just taking off and running away because they need to get out of the environment. It's, it's too much for them. Um, they could also do it if they are bored. This uh, could happen if they are in the house and there are other people in the house and no one's really paying attention to them or engaging with them. 
contrary to popular belief, a lot of people believe that autistic uh, people don't want contact with people. They'd rather be left alone. And some do want to be left alone, but a lot of them actually do want social contact. And if they don't get it, especially the younger kids, they'll start getting bored. And then that's when they start wandering off. And if you forgot to close the sliding glass door, they could wander right out into the backyard. So it's important also to pay attention to, you know, pay attention to the child, period. Are they, you know, are they bored? Are they, um, do, do they need some, some playtime, some mommy and me, daddy and me, grandma and me, sibling and me uh, time, you know, right then. And again, you usually can start as you learn about your child, you kind of learn what their signs are that they're getting bored. You learn the signs that they're overstimulated. All of these can be really important in preventing, you know, a child from eloping and just running off. So take the time to learn those signs from your child, those indicators that, hey, I'm not feeling quite right right now. I I may, you know, I may be a bit overstimulated. I may need some help of something. Otherwise, I may just kind of take off and, and run. And also learn what kind of things fascinate your child. Because if your child really loves squirrels, if they see a squirrel way on the other side of the park, guess what they're probably going to want to do? They're going to want to probably run after the squirrel. Knowing these things about your child can make so much difference in helping to hedge off or anticipate when the child may want to elope. And so that leads me right into the next part where we're going to talk about how do we prepare for these moments? What are things we can do to prevent some of these situations from happening when they run into, you know, keep them from running to the street or unfortunately, like with this tragic situation, going into a body of water. We'll talk about that next. Let's talk about things that we can do to prevent these types of tragedies from happening and things we can do to safeguard our kids, you know, against these kind of incidents from happening. So one of the biggest recommendations that I can give, I cannot say this enough, uh, a ton of parents I've talked to have also recommended this, they've done it themselves, is have the kids get swimming lessons. Some providers even recommend as soon as the child gets an autism diagnosis, get the child into swimming lessons. If you can find an instructor who is experienced with working with special needs children with regards to swimming, even better. But I, I will stress that a million times, get swimming lessons. And I will even add parents, caregivers, if you don't know how to swim, perhaps you should think about getting swimming lessons as well because you might actually be able to save your child's life if you're able to swim and they cannot, for example. So because this is such a prevalent thing, like I said, that statistic, 160 times more likely to die from drowning, I think it goes without saying, and I think it's imperative that the child gets swimming lessons. And if the adults around the child can also get swimming lessons and learn how to swim, I think that's, that makes it even better for sure. Um, the next thing I would say is secure the home. 
that that sounds really like well duh but you would be surprised how many times i've gone into homes and seen up oh, the sliding glass door is kind of cracked open a child could easily put their fingers through push the door open and run out so keep doors locked uh whether you know there are several adults in the house or only one adult in the house keep doors locked if you have an alarm system it would be good to set it so that you can hear you know how most alarm systems the it'll beep if what a door or a window is opened in the house that can be extremely helpful because even if you're in another part of the house if you suddenly hear a beep you know okay someone just opened a door or a window to the outside and it wasn't me it could have been the child let me go find out where it is i know there are even some alarms that will literally beep and tell you which door has been opened so that you know I have several parents who also utilize cameras in the home. They just use kind of basically baby monitors, but they keep them way past the baby age so that they have video surveillance of the children and or the child and where they are in the house. That's also a good idea. Making sure the gates are security locked and can't be easily opened by a young child. So there are I've been in plenty of homes and developments where there may be like a small gate that separates the backyard from, say, the grassy area and a lake that's in the middle of the development. But if it's one of those really easy latches, kids are smart. Regardless of if they're neurotypical or neurodiverse, kids are pretty smart. They can watch after a couple of times and see, oh, I just lift up this latch and boom, I can get out and I can go over to the water or I can go over and see that, that ball that I see sitting over there that someone forgot. So make sure that these are these gate locks are ones that can't easily be opened by a young child. As the children get older, it may be a situation where you have to put the locks higher up so that they can't, you know, I've had parents do that where the children were, would in like an instant run, find the keys or grab the keys from nearby, unlock the door and run out. You would be amazed how fast children can do this. I've seen it happen in literal seconds. Um, I'm going to give a really quick uh, story time on a, this is an older child, but this child was about six or seven. This was probably the worst case scenario I had been in as far as an elopement situation. Luckily, no harm came to the child. No one was seriously injured, but it was a really scary situation. We don't know what had at this point, we hadn't known what it triggered the elopement, but the child, we, I remember the mom and I were sitting and the child suddenly just bolted through past us, went up to the door, unlocked the, the front door and bolted out and down the stairs of the apartment complex and out onto the sidewalk. I did not have time to grab my phone. I didn't have time. Uh, first thing I thought was there is a major road right out there. I need to catch her before she gets to that major road. The child thankfully knew not to run into the road, but she took off around the corner and kept running. So I followed her for, I don't even know how long, how long. it had to have been about uh, 15 or 20 minutes and she would stop for a bit and then she would see me and then she would run again. And at th this point I was wondering if she's like playing a game, which by the way, sometimes that's what's happening too. The child thinks that we're playing a game. So they'll keep running and laughing because they think it's a game now, even though it, it's not. 
The child ended up running to a McDonald's that wasn't too far from the house. And she went into the McDonald's and went into the play area and crawled up into the play area. And she refused to come down for, I'd say, about 30 to 40 minutes. And so now I'm getting nervous because it was getting dark. And I was explaining that, you know, we need to go back home. And it took some time. I I still didn't know what it triggered the elopement. She had seen or heard something that made her think of this place. And she had taken off to go and basically find it. And she found she knew exactly where to run to get to it. She she knew where it was. She ran through a, a neighborhood and got straight to the McDonald's. So she knew exactly where it was and she knew exactly where she was going. So sometimes it wouldn't even it doesn't have to be something that they can see. If they just know it's in this direction and it's in this area, they may just take off in that direction until they run into it. But she knew exactly where this McDonald's was. Finally, I was able to coax her to come down and we and she coming back. She was fine. She held my hand and was just as calm. She'd gotten what she needed to do out the way. She'd gone to McDonald's. She had gone to the play place. She had climbed into the play place. She had done what she needed to do. She clearly needed a break from the house for whatever reason. Couldn't exactly verbalize that. So she just took off. So we're walking back. And that's when we turn the corner to go back to the apartment and there are police everywhere because again, I didn't have my phone with me. So the mom had no idea of knowing what had happened with me or the child. So of course she called the police. Of course, me being a provider of color and being African-American and the child being a young white girl, I was extremely nervous because I just kept thinking of the worst case scenario for me. So now it was like, okay, we both might be in, in, in danger right now. But luckily uh, the police were super um, kind and helpful. I, um, I, I asked them not to really be too hard on the child because she was getting nervous seeing the police. And this is probably going to be another topic for another an, another episode of uh, police and, and law enforcement and autism, because I do not agree with how this child was handled once they kind of took a hold of her because it was clear that she got really afraid and they were trying to hold her to course to keep her from running again. But she was in no position to want to run. She was calm and having all these police officers grab her elevated her again. So then she did get more excited and more likely to run. So I will say that as well. If, you know, you're bringing a child back after they attempted to elope, do not grab the child too roughly. Don't be very aggressive with them because that may trigger them to elope again. And she almost did that. So coming back to what I said before, after that, the locks in the house were placed higher up where she can't reach them. So now if she wanted to reach them, she'd have to grab a chair and climb up, which she did attempt a couple of times, but that gives, that takes a lot more time. So there's far more time for someone to react or talk to her or, you know, put her back down and say, nope, we're not going to do that right now. Uh, it gives more time to be able to react basically. But again, like I said, this is one of the realities of, um, of autism. It's a very common behavior with it. And 
you know, we're just going through some of the things that you can do in order to uh, prevent or minimize the chance of that happening. So let's talk about some more. I'm going to share some tips now that I have learned over the years working with different families, uh, with autistic children, working with teachers and staff on things that you can do to help prevent um, not only elopement, but in turn, these, you know, these unnecessary drownings from happening. So first, ideally, make sure that there is an adult watching the child especially if they are prone to eloping and if there are open bodies of water nearby. If you are outside, if you are at the beach, if you are at a lake, please make sure that someone is keeping an eye on the child. And this goes double and triple if they're a child that's prone to running off or eloping. Keep watch on the child. Again, like I said before, second, make certain that all doors are secured behind you when anyone goes outside. So if you go out to the garage, for example, and you have you know the door that leads from the house into the garage and then you have the garage door open, make sure you close that door behind you that leads into the house because that child may follow you out. And if they see something, like I said, in the driveway or across the street, they may make a beeline for that thing or object or person. Be aware of where a child is if a door to the outside is opened. So for example, even if you are just going to pick up an Amazon delivery box, if you're just opening the front door and you're just stepping out to get the box, a child could literally take off and just squirm right by you in a matter of seconds. I have literally seen this happen. I've seen it happen in real time where a parent was like, oh, I'm just picking this up from outside. And I, and let's say I'm like, where's the kid? And they open the door and they're picking up the box. And I see this little flash of color out the corner of my eyes. And here's the kid making a beeline to the front door. And I was able to intercept the kid before they got to the door. And the parent was completely stunned. Like, whoa, I didn't even see where they came from. I said, they can come out of nowhere like that. And as they get older, it can be, you would think it'd be easier to catch them because they'll be bigger, but they get faster and they get stronger. So it can be much more difficult to catch them as they get older. Like I said before, I'll reiterate it again. If you are a parent or a caregiver who doesn't know how to swim, consider taking swimming lessons, maybe right alongside your child. You both learn how to swim. That way now you're protecting yourself especially since we are in a state here in Florida that's surrounded on three sides of water and you're protecting your child. Another option that you have is to actually place a tracking device on your child. This is especially good if you do have a child who is very much prone to absconding, especially in public places. Some parents will put contact information on their child, maybe inside a pocket or attached to, a, to um, inside a pocket on, on clothes or in jeans. So that if the child absconds and, and is found, there's the contact information right there. Some of them have bracelets, like medical type bracelets that have their name and their address on it. A lot of times if the child is verbal, one of the things we recommend is that the child is taught their full name, their parent's name, 
their address. And I understand that some people are like, oh, well, couldn't that make it more prone for them to be to be kidnapped? Is that a risk? Yes. But it's there's also a risk that if the child is out and has absconded or eloped and they're found by someone who does want to help, how is how are they going to get the child back to the to the family? So, yes, there's an argument for and against that tactic. Use your own discretion as far as whether or not you want to use that and put contact information on physically on your child. If you have neighbors around you that you really trust, let them know that this child is prone to elope so that they can also keep an eye out. Maybe your hands might be full and the child may run out the front door, but you know your neighbor Robert across the hall happened to be coming out and knows that this child tends to elope, so he was able to intercept the child before they got to the stairs, for example. You know, Enlist your community and your neighbors around you, especially if you've had really good relationships with your neighbors. Enlist them, have them help out as possible, you know, keeping an eye out to help with the child. Some um, parents even go as far as to post the, you might see them sometimes, they actually have the signs if they're near or, or live on a busy street, they'll put a sign that kind of indicates, you know, there's a child who may run into the road or there's a child here who tends to, who tends to run out into the street. I've seen signs like that that are actually put up on the side of the road. And by default, I slow down when I see those kind of signs, because I know, okay, at any given moment, a child may come darting out from, from, from nowhere. So if you live on a busy street, that could be a a possible consideration to actually have a sign to indicate to drivers, Hey, you know, be on the lookout. If you have a child who, you know, is really, really fascinated with water, allow them to have free play time with water in a secure and monitored area such as, say, the bathtub or a kiddie pool in a secure backyard. Or if you guys have a pool in your backyard, a regular size pool, have a definitely have a fence around that pool. Please put up put up a, a child-proof fence around the pool. But have like scheduled times where there's monitored, you know, free play for that child to play a bit in the water with all the proper safety you know, things, goggles, floaties, all that stuff, and a trusted adult who knows how to swim, that's with them. That can help reduce the water-related eloping, and it also helps with the child's sensory needs with the water play. For slightly older kids, you could create a simple, what we call social story, about water safety for the child. You can use real pictures of areas and explain this is safe, this is not safe, I've made different social stories where I included characters that I knew the child really likes. I've made uh, social stories from like Pokemon characters or Disney princesses. Uh, I've used, I think, um, Transformers, different toys and characters that the kids like. Have the characters telling the story. Um, This one wasn't about elopement, but I remember I made a story for a child who was starting in daycare for the first time. And she was about four and she was a little nervous about it, but she loved Pokemon. So I made a Pokemon story. I made a story using like different screenshots from Pokemon episodes. I made up a story about Pikachu's first day at school and how Pikachu learned to make friends at school and how everyone was nice. And I found that I took that. It, we went with the child on their first day to the school and we let the child take the social story in. 
And the entire class ended up falling in love with that social story. And every time that the behavioral interventionist went, the whole class wanted her to read that story. So social stories can be extremely impactful for um, kids. So if you want it, does it take a lot of creativity? Yes, I use PowerPoint to create mine and then print them out in color. And if you have access to a laminator, you can laminate it and hole punch it and all that good stuff. You can be as, as jazzed up with it as you want. But for slightly older kids, you could create a social story about water safety for them. And also actually give positive reinforcement when the child does stay close to you and doesn't you know, run away or elope and, and highlight that behavior instead of, uh, you know, just saying, you know, oh, uh, good, you know, oh, good. You didn't you, you didn't run off. Mark, again, kind of like shape it in a way that accents, this is what I want you to do. Like, thank you for staying next to me in the store. Or you did a great job holding my hand at the park because you're reiterating to the child, this is the behavior that I want to see from you. This is, I want to see you like holding my hand when we're out in public places. I want to see that you stay next to me when we're in a store and don't, and don't run off. And the child understands, oh, if I do this behavior... I get a positive response. Rather, I don't even try to focus on giving negative responses to the negative behavior. I prefer giving no response to negative behavior or neutral responses. But when the child does what you want them to do, in this case, if they stay close to you instead of running off, praise the child for that. Give them kudos on top of kudos because that's going to want to that's going to make the child want to continue to do the right thing. Establishing these kind of boundaries and safety procedures when they're young is really important because, as I said before, that six, seven-year-old that I had to chase after was much harder to chase than a two-year-old because she was extremely quick. Um, and finally, if a child goes to a daycare center or a private school, make sure they have a safety plan in place, especially if there is a body of water near or on the grounds, even if it's just a kiddie pool, because even like the medium sized kiddie pools can be pretty big if they're filled with water. And yes, a child could possibly drown in one of those. So make sure that the school that you're or the daycare center has a safety plan in place, at least a general safety plan. If they don't have a general one, create one with them for your child. You never know that plan that you created for your child may end up saving another child's life later on. So bottom line, if you take nothing away, always have a safety plan. And with that, I am going to wrap up this episode of Spark Up. I know that this was a more somber topic, uh, a serious topic, but again, it's something that has to be discussed and something that has to be shared and, and, and resources and tips shared because we want to prevent these kind of tragedies from happening. My uh, heart, thoughts, and prayers go out to the family who um, suffered this loss. It's never easy to suffer a loss within a family, but for a child, it's especially, especially hard. And I hope that some of the things that I discussed today will help other families prevent such a tragedy from occurring. We, that's what we want to do. That's one of the reasons why I created this podcast was to get information out to help 
families navigate the world of autism with regards to their children or their family members. So I hope all of you were able to take away something from it. I I hope that uh, you create safety plans for your family and for your children. I hope you utilize those safety plans. But I hope you also have fun with your child with regards to to water in particular. Water doesn't have to be a, a terrible, horrible, dangerous thing. Like I said, a lot of autistic children love it. And there are ways that you can enjoy water and it not be dangerous and get swimming lessons. Please take sw- I can't stress that enough. Please take swimming lessons. If you wish to continue the conversation with me, look me up. You can email me at angelw, A-N-G-E-L-W at sparkguidance.com. That's spelled S-P-A-R-C-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. AngelW at sparkguidance.com. You can look up my website, www.sparkguidance.com. Same spelling. You can hit me up on Instagram at sparkguidance. And if you want to listen to other episodes of the podcast, you can go to www.sparkupautismaltogether.com. I hope you all stay healthy, stay safe, and above all, be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye.